Hey team, it's Jordan here from NZ Audio Editors. I just wanted to say that this episode doesn't actually reference COVID-19 because it was done well ahead of time. But I hope that uh, for even for an hour or so, the content that we provide does in fact take your mind away from it. And we also hope that your families are safe, you're safe, and everybody remains that way. So best wishes from NZ Audio Editors. One plan for retirement. Take care of yourselves. Talk soon. This podcast is proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web. Greg Moyle and Ryan Melton from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. This is not to be seen as personal advice as it is a podcast, but will give you the tools you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, Greg's a bit of a history buff. Seems to memorize all these different numbers and dates and things that people have done in history. Majority of it's been military. And there, there's quite an interesting story we sort of discussed the other day about Nathan Rothschild and the insider information that he got that potentially could have led to the great wealth he managed to accumulate. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about that. Well, the legend is that Nathan Rothschild made a fortune after the Battle of Waterloo on the basis of information that he knew that the market didn't know. And if you Google that, you'll you'll see there's competing arguments. Certainly the Rothschild family were very wealthy. Yeah. And they were a family that basically the patriarch had sent his sons to different parts of Europe, to France, where I think they originated from, to Germany and to England. And they all basically were in the in the banking, investing, financing business. But the Battle of Waterloo in the 1812 was a, a watershed moment because Napoleon had come back after his uh, defeat before and his captivity, had reassembled the Grand French Army and was off to reconquer Europe. And clearly there was a fair bit of uh, concern in, in the UK or in England as it was at that time. And the um, British Army had been dispatched to the continent under the Duke of Wellington and a, a battle took place at the area of Waterloo, which is in Belgium, and basically the victor of that would decide the course of history going forward. If it was Napoleon, that would mean the British Army had been defeated, um, maybe he would invade England, but certainly he'd be the undisputed master of of Europe. Uh, so there was Waterloo on one side, and then there was the Prussians, I think it was General Blücher on the other, and and and, uh, and Waterloo and at Waterloo it was a very close run uh, outcome. The markets had thought that Napoleon would would win. Uh, because there'd been a prior French victory in another area that that had sort of caused the markets to uh, be pretty 
how would it, sensitive to to negative news, and uh, the, the markets had apparently been fallen because there was an expectation that um, that there'd be a defeat at Waterloo as well. What happened, of course, as we know, is that Duke, the Duke of Wellington was able to defeat because of the intervention of the Prussians at a critical part of the battle, defeat Napoleon and, and the British were victorious. The news of that had to get back to the UK and it was a question of who got there first. Uh, apparently, uh, Wellington dispatched a, a rider to ride to the coast, get a boat and then ride on to London to, to inform the the king at that time um, that they were victorious. Rothschild, one legend says that he used his uh, pigeon post to get the news first. What was more likely, I suspect, that he had a, a, a series of dispatch riders, a bit like the American Pony Express, rather than one rider riding the distance, there'd be a succession there. And apparently he got the news 48 hours ahead of everyone else and use that information to be able to uh, let the market fall on the expectation of a bad result, bought at the bottom and kept buying and of course bought and held and when the market went up he was a very, very wealthy man. I suspect he was already wealthy and this just added to his wealth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really what you'd call insider training as it's known today, which is, of course, illegal. Uh, he just had advanced notice of an event and was able to use that for his, for his own and family benefit. Insider trading is a lot more insidious. I mean, insider trading is about some insider having knowledge about an event that the rest of the investing public don't have and wouldn't have access to. Uh, I saw an example of that in respect of a pharmaceutical-type product uh, that was being tested in Australia. It was owned by a listed company, a company listed on the Australian stock market, the share price had languished about 16%, six, uh, 16 cents for a long period of time as this particular product, this drug, went through its appropriate uh, testing protocols. Um, the expectation was that it was doing well, but the market was still pretty muted. Um, then the latest trial was going to be forecast say in a month or two's time and the market anticipated a very positive result and it lifted quite significantly getting up to I think at one stage a dollar sixty-eight for a share that had previously been 16 cents. Um, sadly for those who bought at those high levels, uh, the product turned out to be less successful than what they call a placebo, which is like, you know, if you've got a liquid with the medicine, water. Mm. Water was more successful than the the drug. So uh, when that news came out, um, of course, the share price plummeted right back to um, where it was and below. Um, However, one of the directors of that company based overseas in the US uh, got advance notice that the trial had failed and used that knowledge to inform family members who then sold the shares off, or their shares off, at the much higher price. 
causing a substantial loss to the to the purchaser and the benefit to them. Mm. Um, the various authorities don't look kindly on that, and this particular chap got prosecuted and got a bit of jail time in the US. So, you know, that's where um, an example of insider trading, where someone has used information they have, they're privy to, that the market doesn't have, to to extract a benefit, and that's clearly illegal, and it should be, because the information should be freely available to the public, and people can then make a form, informed decision as to the actual value or price of a particular company share. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, in, in the side of trading, is just an unfair advantage, and it's, it's, it's as a flow-on effect for the people, as you say, the purchaser, and it's just not a fair thing to have out there. So. Well, if we don't have confidence in the financial markets, just as if we don't have confidence in the banks, uh, the whole financial system will just implode. As I said earlier, if, if people felt that the banks couldn't honour the deposits that have been made by mums and dads into that bank, then there'd be no confidence in that bank and people would uh, try and extract their money and the banks would fail. Uh, having extracted their money, where would they? what would they do with it? Hide it under the bed, bury mm. it in the backyard? Uh, that's not going to work for um, our society, which is really based a lot on trust. Trust that the financial markets are operating efficiently, that if the government issues you a dollar note or a dollar coin, well, it's no dollar note, it's a five-dollar note or a dollar coin, uh, the government will honour that particular note or coin and give you a dollar or five dollars worth of value for it. For sure. I mean, yeah, trust is the foundation of any sort of partnership and also system. But I suppose that leads us on to something else. I mean, I, there was a, an article in the Herald that I saw in the letters to the editor where a <laughs> bloke who had l- lost a bit of money yeah. uh, through the actions of a chap called David Ross, who's a fraudster. I think he might have been an accountant, but certainly he was a fraudster and ran a, a Ponzi scheme out of Wellington. And uh, he ended up losing... I don't know, was it $100 million worth of clients' funds? Yeah, a lot. The, a substantial amount of money, a bit like a Madoff, but on a New Zealand scale, a lot less. Uh, still significant and very significant for the people whose money was lost. Mm. Uh, he was given 10 years jail, but he was out in four, and this particular person writing in, clearly someone who'd lost money uh, through investing, if you can call it that, I'd call it speculating, uh, with David Ross, felt that David Ross should stay in jail for longer. I had to agree. I think when someone does something like that, if you like, breaches that trust, uh, the effects of that on the people concerned are permanent. Yeah. You know, if someone comes into your house and they steal your television, well, it's huge invasion of your privacy and quite traumatic you can always get another television and it's probably insured if someone um, assaults you which again you know is a terrible thing to happen uh, you might be temporarily injured um, but hopefully you would recover and and that person needs to be punished but and in our society they get a significant punishment 
But sometimes those people, the fraudsters, the people I used to encounter a little bit when I was in the corporate fraud unit in the 80s, um, these are people who can't even lie straight in bed. They don't, the, the, the moral chip that most of us would have, knowing things are definitely wrong, is certainly removed from those people. They don't care who they hurt, family members, friends, um, members of the public, and Ross clearly falls into that category. Uh, when they lose someone's money, particularly if it's money there for someone's retirement, that permanent loss is not something people can recover from. Because suddenly, having expected to maintain a certain standard of living in retirement, having worked for many, many years to put yourself in that situation, the loss of that money means that suddenly you're not able to do the things that you'd hoped and and wanted to do. And you're basically going to have to live on whatever you can get from New Zealand Super and what you can extract from the arrangement, if any. And, And we all know that if you're receiving New Zealand Super in retirement, um, it's not enough to live on, it's barely enough to exist on. And if you don't own your own home, it, it, it's worse, except I suppose you might be able to get a housing supplement, but that doesn't give you a great deal of security. And if you do own your own home and you're living on New Zealand Super and just existing, what happens, of course, is you're no longer able to maintain that home in the standard that you would like to. You know, things like um, you know, utilities, you're not able necessarily to easily re- replace them, the carpeting, curtains, um, kitchens, bathrooms, they all age. It's the outside maintenance, the internal maintenance of the property. And you can see that sometimes. I call it, it's like a, a genteel decline. You can just see that the people's living standards are reducing uh, as they get older. And I think that's quite sad. And if they come and get decent advice, it's certainly avoidable. Um, but if you go to a fraudster like David Ross, um, you're toast. And, of course, the, this article said that not only should he spend time, more time in jail, but actually that the financial community and the public at large should actually compensate the people who'd lost money. Well, to that point, I would disagree because I think at the end of the day, you reap what you sow. And if you're dealing with someone who's not properly qualified and you haven't done your due diligence and if they're making uh, suggestions or promises of returns that sound so good um, that, you know, that you, 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 you kind of get a little bit greedy and, and uh, excited about the whole thing, um, perhaps you have to look at yourself as being responsible for your loss. If it sounds too good to be true... It probably is. That's an adage that you know has applied across the ages. So if everyone else in the market is getting five percent and you're getting fifteen, um, you must be taking a level of risk that is way and above what everyone else is doing. And the consequence of that might be that you're going to lose capital. Mm, for sure. Uh, that's that's a sad thing, especially when you take risk at that point of your life and you don't have an income. It's yeah, it's yeah, you can't it's crazy, really, isn't yeah. it? I mean, the the you know the, the the basis of investment is different from speculation. You'll get rich from speculation if you get it right. 
If you get it wrong, you lose all your money. Mm. And if you're doing that with money you can afford to lose, like going to the racetrack, that's great. You know, if you've got $100 that you are happy to lose, you can put it on uh, one of the horses to win. And you wouldn't put it necessarily on the favourite, you put it on one of the outsiders and you can make a lot of money. But you could easily lose your $100. Yeah. And if you can walk away from that, that's fine. But if it was $100,000 or several hundred thousand dollars or a million, would you do that? Of course you wouldn't. No. You know, you'd say, well, I've got to protect this money. In fact, the first rule is you make money by not losing it. How do you do that? Well, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You diversify. You get uh, appropriate advice and you're dealing with people who can be trusted and institutions that can be trusted. And your expectations are reasonable. I suppose that was one of the invidious things about the finance companies is that at that time you could probably get about 7% plus or minus on term deposit in a bank. And banks, in my view, can be trusted in that respect. People said that that wasn't good enough, so they went to the finance companies, the bridge courts, the capital and merchants, the handovers, where they were going to get 9 to 9.5%. On their money, so really only talking two to two and a half percent more than the bank, and they thought because these organisations, these looked like institutions, looked like they were solid, had um, you know, ex MPs and notable people as directors, that therefore there was a level of governance uh, that meant that they were trusted institutions. Nothing could be further than the truth because no one actually asks the question of how can these people give nine and a half when the banks are giving seven? Where is the money invested? What is the risks involved? How safe is my money? And when you try to find that information out, it was quite clear that these people were taking money from the public on lending it at a what they call a procreation fee, maybe 3%, uh, that was never paid but added to the loan to developers to develop residential or commercial property, generally commercial property, and that the interest that was being paid by the developers was in the it's in the uh, range of 18% plus or minus, and, of course, no interest was ever being paid because it was being compounded into the loan to be repaid when the development succeeded, was sold, uh, which didn't seem to happen within the appropriate time frame. So mums and dads were giving money to an organisation that was speculating with their money, taking horrendous interest rates, I mean... 18% plus the procreation fee. It's hardly cheap lending when those people could have borrowed it from the bank from for 10%, if you like, if they met the bank's criteria, which clearly they didn't no. because they were developers. Um, when people saw that, they said, well, actually, I'm taking a lot of risk. And they were, and they lost their money. If those institutions had gone to the public and said, look, we'll give you 15% on your money and been quite clear about how it was being um, operated, some people would have been quite happy to go along with that. 
but not mums and dads. Mm. Mums and dads would say, oh, 15%, the bank's seven, clearly there's a lot of risk. I could lose money. In fact, I could lose all my money. I'm not going to touch it with a barge pole. And that's where that was kind of insidious and not enough people went to jail, in my view, because mm. the people who were running those organisations either knew or ought to have known what was going on. For sure. And the liberties they were taking with other people's money. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, obviously the first filter when looking at a potential investment strategy is there's a correlation between risk and return. So if there's a obscenely high return compared to the market, you've got to be concerned. But then also, obviously, you need to look under the hood. I sort of had the, the analogy of only trust people with things you can afford to lose. But the the thing and the point of this episode was really to go in the direction of that sort of military side of things and bring quite a unique perspective and an interest to this episode because there was a story that not enough New Zealanders know about with regards to the Kenwa and World War One. And it's, it's a big passion of yours, the, the military side of things, and it is a project that you're, you're helping make happen. Um, so I'm wondering if you could share the story of what the New Zealanders did to help the people of Lakenwa. Thank you, Ryan. I'd be very happy to share the story. It's <laughs> not a story that I knew much about, and I'm sure most people knew very little about, until I went there in 1999. I went there with a buddy, a chap, Merton Fraser, Mert and I met up in Wairu in 1974 when we both, uh, not knowing each other, independently joined the New Zealand Territorial Army and went down there to do our basic training. And Mert and I have been firm friends ever since, along with several other blokes I met at that time. And in 1999, Mert and I decided after 25 years of joining the Army, I was still there, uh, Mert had had more sense he'd left, uh, <laughs> but the, we decided to go to Europe and, and do a battlefield tour and, and we also were going to the Rugby World Cup and we certainly don't want to talk about that but you remember it was 1999 we got beaten by the French in Twickenham when everyone thought we were going to win the World Cup uh, with Jonah Lomu and uh, all those wonderful players of that time. So Mert and I, during our battlefield tour, went to the little town of Lakenwa. I had a, a friend uh, who was involved in taking tours there, a chap called Herb Farrand, a, a notable amateur military historian, and he gave me the contact of some people there. And so Mert and I basically, in a little rented French car, drove to Lakenwa. Lakenwa is about two and a half hours northeast of of Paris. It was a, a little town, 17th century fortress town, built by uh, Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King, using his military architect, a chap called Sebastien Vauban, probably the most notable military architect of the time. And the Vauban fortresses, I think there were about 25 to 27 of them, were, bo- were built by Louis XIV uh, on the northern borders of France as it bordered Belgium and Holland uh, because at the end of the Hundred Year War, or the what they call the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, France wanted to establish its boundaries. And uh, so this historic town built in the 17th century, uh, was still, as it was in many respects, the, the, the walls were in, you know, the fortress was there, 
1914 when the Germans invaded France and Belgium. So the Germans had occupied the little town of Le Quinoa. Uh, it's a rural town. It's a population of about 5,000 within the town and maybe in the wider area about 15,000, a little bit like Alexandra in, uh, in central Otago, a town of that size, that the French clearly probably weren't happy about the German occupation over that period of time. And in 1918, the New Zealand Division, uh, leading the British Third Army, and the British Third Army had 13 divisions, and the New Zealand Division was um, undisputably the, the strongest division in British Third Army. It basically had led for 55 of the last 75 days of the advance to victory. Um, they had 10 days, two periods of 10 days out of the field, uh, suffered during that period of time something like 10,000 casualties, um, 2,800 killed, uh, found themselves outside the town of Lakenwa. 14,400 strong. It was a division made up of three brigades, the 1st Brigade from the North Island, the 2nd Brigade from the South Island, and the 3rd Brigade was called the Rifle Brigade. And uh, those three brigades were detailed by the general in charge of the New Zealand Army, by the name of Andrew Russell, that uh, they were to encircle the town, the 1st and 2nd Brigades were advanced to the divisional objective, the Forest of Momel, which was part of you know, blocking off uh, the route between uh, France, Belgium and Germany uh, because the German army were effectively retreating. Uh, that The 4th Brigade, the Rifle Brigade, were tasked to liberate the town of Le Quinoa without destroying the historic town, uh, without killing any of the civilian inhabitants. And um, a plan was hatched whereby uh, the brigade would advance to Le Quinoa. And of course, you know, in those days, what they would do is they basically bombard the town. It would be just left in ruins and they'd just roll through. So what actually transpired, and there's a little bit of controversy about it, but I think the accepted story is that the 4th Battalion of the Rifle Brigade managed to get close enough to the wall. It took them a while, and they had several attempts, that they were able to put continuous machine gun rifle and they were able to fire um, oil drums onto the ramparts so that the, the German defenders weren't able to fire on on the troops as they got a, a ladder, <laughs> the one surviving ladder, uh, close enough to the walls. Now, the walls were 39 feet high, <laughs> uh, but they found the one place, and it cost the life of a chap called Lieutenant Evans, who had, with a group of men, uh, done a reconnaissance and got close to the wall and found the one place uh, above the sluice gate where the wall was only 25 feet. So they found a ladder, or had a ladder that survived, 
uh, got that against the wall, and the first man up the ladder was actually a young intelligence officer, 21-year-old Leslie Avril, uh, from originally from Christchurch. Uh, he got up the ladder, followed by um, the rest of the over time, the 4th Battalion, uh, one man at a time. It was this rickety ladder at 25 feet high. You wouldn't have been wanting to... I don't think I'd want to go up to it. I'm a bit bigger than Leslie Avril would have been. Uh, I've said after you, Leslie. Um, <laughs> up, up the ladder, um, with a revolver in hand, apparently fired at a couple of Germans who disappeared quite quickly uh, when they realised, of course, that the New Zealanders were going to uh, actually get into the town they were then able to open up what they call the Valencian Gate and the rest of the the Rifle Brigade were able to, to go in there, led by the 2nd Battalion, I believe, and the Germans surrendered. There were about 700 Germans in the town. About 2,000, I think, were captured overall. Uh, the town was liberated. There were no civilian casualties, no damage to the town. However, we lost 143 men on the day, 67 directly as a result of the assault. So quite a significant penalty for New Zealand to pay uh, late in the war, because this took place on the 4th of November 1918, and armistice was uh, seven days later. The remarkable thing about the story is that not only did we liberate the town, not only were there no civilian casualties, but the people of Lakenwa have never forgotten. So when I drove up there in 1999, I drove into this little town, which was pretty much the same as it would have been 100 years ago with the walls and the cobbled, uh, cobbled streets and little alleyways and bits and pieces all converging on the town square with the, uh, the, what they call the Hotel de Ville, the, the, the town hall there, um, quite an imposing building. And there were all these names that, that talked about New Zealand. There were Avenue de, de la New Zealand, the uh, Rue de Aotearoa, uh, Place de All Blacks, the local school is named after Leslie Avril, our colder Leslie Avril. Um, <coughs> there's even, can you believe it, a, a, a Rue de Helen Clark. <laughs> and, and so it was quite, you know, you felt, gee, there's a connection here, and I didn't really know all the story. And, you know, I came across you know, a big mural on the wall of a Maori warrior and a, and, a, and a map of New Zealand, and, and you know, so there was all these New Zealand connections. And what really re resonated, though, was when you met some of the locals and you identified yourself as a New Zealander, these are people who have never forgotten. Um, because they are the descendants of the people who were there um, in 1914, uh, 1918. And of course, even the young people understand because they all went to the school named after this intrepid New Zealander who went over the wall, and so they know the story. Uh, I went to Crete some years ago, and people may know a little bit about the Battle of Crete and the role of New Zealanders. And the Cretans, when I went there first, and I think 1990, uh, were, you know, you know, they had always showed New Zealanders a great deal of hospitality. But when I went back there in 2000 and... I'm trying to think what it was, 2013, 14, uh, 
they were still there, but there was a lot of changes had taken place, and the younger people, when I spoke to them, didn't really know much of the history. And of course, there all the German and British holiday owners go there, and it's just changed. But the Kenwa is a little bit like it's frozen in time. It's a rural village, not where people go to in France because there's no um, no beaches and no wine. Um, they're just um, some orchards and farmland, and it's a rural place. Um, the nearest big town is Valenciennes, which is about 30 to 35 um, uh, minutes away to towards the west. But there is this amazing connection between the town of Lakenwa and the people of New Zealand. And, of course, that's been represented a little bit because there's a, a, a sister-city relationship with the town of Cambridge and Lakenwa. And if you go to Cambridge, they actually have a, a weekend when they remember Lakenwa. Uh, in St Andrew's Church there, there's a lead light uh, window that displays... Uh, soldiers going up a ladder against the wall. So the story is out there. In fact, there's a wonderful uh, children's book uh, written by Guy uh, Glenn Harper. Glenn is a military historian, was in the military, I think a lieutenant colonel or colonel when he retired, written this wonderful book from a French child's perspective how the New Zealanders came from the uttermost ends of the world to liberate this little town. The lovely thing about it, of course, is it, it's, a, it's a story of hope. It's a story of um, how we as New Zealanders made a difference to the people in this town and how uh, we have this connection. Quite different from Gallipoli, where... Um, it wasn't just New Zealanders involved in Gallipoli. We were a small part of a much bigger enterprise with the, you know, the the English, the Australians, the French, uh, Indian troops there. Um, yes, New Zealand made played a remarkable part, and we batted well above our weight. But at the end of the day, uh, we were evading another country. Um, Yes, the Turks respect the New Zealanders, but if you go to Gallipoli today, and I've been there twice, it's quite different from where it was when I went there on the 75th commemoration in 1990. Um, It's now, today, turned into quite a different scenario, and there's nothing that really tells the New Zealand story. And that's really what we want to do in respect to this trust I've been involved in since... 2010 is to tell the story of the New Zealand involvement in the liberation of Lakenwa and to have a place in Lakenwa we we can do that but also tell the story of the 75,000 New Zealanders who served in France on the Western Front between 1916 and 1918 up in Flanders which is in Belgium and on the Somme which is in France. And the Kenwa is right at the end of the Somme or Sambra Valley as the New Zealanders advanced after the New Zealanders and Australians stopped the German advance in, uh, in 1918. To, uh, I think it was pretty much in August, something July, August, they stopped the uh, German advance. Uh, the 
the Australians did it at a place called Villas Brett now and they've built a $100 million museum there, two kilometres outside the town of Villas Brett now. The New Zealanders stopped them at a place called Malimet or Hoplunds and um, it was from there that they did the advance, as I say, the advance to victory, which culminated in the New Zealand division finding themselves outside the walls of the Kenwa on the 4th of November 1918. So we want, as part of this trust, to have our place, our te papa, uh, we built some we sorry, brought some land and a building, two and a half acres within the town, uh, a walled enclosure. Um, it was the plus a, a building that was built in 1890, the mayor's house that was there in 1918 and would have um, entertained New Zealand troops after they liberated the town. So we've got this two and a half acre section with this mansion on it. Uh, along with that, of course, we've ended up with nine accommodation units because from 1950 on, uh, the gendarmerie, the, the police, regional police, occupied the site and they built some accommodation, some masonettes, two blocks of four and a single masonette. So we'd looked at the number of places, Herb and I, uh, over time to find what's a suitable property where we could tell the New Zealand story to New Zealanders and other visitors to La Kenwa. And when we saw this one, it was like the light bulb went on uh, because this is a home and income. Here's a building uh, that could house a visitor centre and part of a museum. And there's the accommodation that would provide the income to fund uh, the operational expenses, the objects of the museum, because we all know that museums uh, bleed money, they don't make money. Mm. Um, I know in Auckland, as a former Auckland City Councillor, the Auckland War Memorial Museum probably costs the people of Auckland uh, plus or minus $24 million a year to keep going. Uh, so clearly, if you're going to have a museum-type project in a little place like La Quenua, which is a long way away from places, but not that far away, uh, as I say, it's you know two and a half hours northeast of, of Paris, uh, easy to get to by train or, or, or by by car. Uh, I suppose you could cycle, but that'd be a long time to get there from. But but people do people do cycle all over the, because it's very flat. Uh, it's not like New Zealand. It's not undulating. It's very flat, and and the road users are pretty courteous to to cyclists. But that it's not that far away for people to go, and if there is a place to visit and accommodation, it makes it worthwhile because in the mayor's house, the former mayor's house or the former gendarmerie, uh, we can. Uh, not only help people to find things of interest to them, but we can tell the story not only of Lakenwa but of the New Zealand division. And I'd like to see it as a place where people go to to get information and then go from there and do their their trip. And if the trip includes uh, looking at what New Zealanders did in, in the First World War. Uh, of course, New Zealanders didn't serve in France in the Second World War, but they served in Italy and they served in the air with the uh, Bomber Command. So we could tell their story at La Quenua because 
all the other countries have got their own place. The mm. Australians at Villa's Breath and now $100 million. They've also built uh, two museums costing, I think, about $10 million at Fumel and Bopam. Uh, the Canadians have got two museum arrangements at uh, Newfoundland Park and uh, Vimy Ridge. The, the British have got Theoval, which was the place that the uh, Somme offensive, starting on the 1st of July 1916, took place. And many people will know that story if they've read the, the book Birdsong, um, where the British... Army, the new army, Kitchener's new army, all got destroyed over a period of time as they advanced on the German lines. Um, the South Africans have got their museum at a place called Deval Wood, but there is nowhere in continental Europe where we as New Zealanders are able to tell our story. And 100,000 people... I think it was 103,000 New Zealanders, including 500 nurses. So the rest were clearly all men, young men uh, from New Zealand, served in the First World War. That's 10% of our population at that time. Mm. We had 58,000 casualties. 18,700 died. 12,800 of them are still in Europe. so we made a huge sacrifice as a country uh, at that time. And whether you believe they did the right thing or not, that's a personal uh, decision, and we can look at it um, at back in hindsight. But at the time, I remember talking to one of the survivors, Curly Blythe, who died in 105. Uh, he was at Lakenwa. He led the uh, 1st Battalion of the Rifle Brigade, and they took the the railway lines uh, as they advanced from the town of Bodeni to Lakenwa. And I said, Curly, why did you go? And he said, for God, king and country. Now that kind of weeks are really in this day and age, but that's what those young men believed at the time. They were doing their duty for the mother country, God, king and and country. They saw themselves probably initially not as New Zealanders, but um, as colonials, as um, British subjects living in another country. But it was on the the cliffs of Gallipoli and on the fields of uh, the Western Front that the New Zealand, um, what would I call it, identity uh, was formed. And you know, that's where we became something different from just a colonial a subject of the British Empire. Um, we became New Zealanders, and that's, I think, where we formed our nation. And when you go to a place like Lakenway, you have a sense of pride as a New Zealanders that there was this town that they made the conscious decision to liberate without destroying it and without a civ- single civilian casualty. Yeah, and it's a, as we wrap this up, I mean, the, from a different generational sort of perspective, like I've never um, met anyone that was in the war in my family, you know, they'd already passed. So this is this is a very challenging thing to resonate with in terms of the war and, and how the ideals have changed and the colonial aspect of it. But what makes it so fascinating is that it was a heroic act to liberate this town and it's a friendship that lasted over a century. 
So it's just a fascinating experience. And if you're curious about it, it's called the New Zealand Memorial Museum in La Quenoa. La Quenoa is spelt differently from it sounds. Obviously, it's French, but it's L-E-Q-U-E-S-N-O-Y, I believe. So have that, have a look online or gregmoyle.com. There's a bit of a video about you talking about that project because it is. It makes a lot of sense and it's not glorifying war. It's effectively paying homage to the, the people that did pass away doing the best they could, maybe in harsh circumstances, but they were still trying to help in their eyes. So yeah, by all means, have a look. And also in terms of a finance perspective, if you have any questions, uh, ryan at oneplan.co.nz. And yeah, look forward to hearing from you next week. And just uh, before we close, and thank you, Ryan, for that that uh, opportunity. This is a project that I want to see us as New Zealanders have a ownership in, and the government have chosen not to support it. Uh, we do get a tax credit for those who contribute to the project, but the government are not going to uh, write the big check out that the Australians did. And I don't think they should either. I think at the end of the day, this project belongs to the people in New Zealand. And I'd like to see every young person who is looking to travel to Europe that puts Le Quenoa as on their bucket list, uh, because it should, on, in my view, be a, a place of pilgrimage. Because when you go there, um, it does make you feel proud that we as New Zealanders did make a difference to the people of this particular town. And as I say, they have not forgotten. I'm hopeful that the old building there will be a visitor centre. I personally think the town itself is a museum because you can walk around the ramparts. Uh, there is a New Zealand garden there. You can go to the point where the the ladder went up on the sluice gate. There's a Natapawai there, which is something the government's put in there. The Natapawai gives a little bit of a, a background to what happened in that place. Um, the, the French actually have almost ceded a part of that area as New Zealand's sovereign territory. But one of the locals said, oh, have you got your passport? I said, why? Because you'll be entering New Zealand as you go through this arch and stand in front of the wall where the memorial is. I don't know if that's true, but it's a nice story. Um, there's the New Zealand cemetery there, an extension to the local cemetery where you'll find New Zealanders who died at that time are buried, and there's some very interesting stories there, uh, one of which is of a chap called Major McKinnon and his uh, adjutant. They were not actually involved in the battle on the day. He was in charge of the Wellington Battalion, and they are observing the battle, and... Uh, the father of a friend of mine who was a runner for that particular uh, battalion had gone up to uh, to speak to those officers and had then wandered away, um, heard the thump of a shell and looked back and, and the two of them had been killed by a, a stray German shell that had come from wherever, a couple of kilometres away probably, and taken them both out. And they'd survived in respect of the Major, Major McKinnon, um, Gallipoli and the entire um, time from 1916 to 1918 on the Western Front. And the adjutant had been to Samoa as part of the Samoan Expeditionary Force, then Gallipoli and then to, to France. So imagine going throughout the whole war and just right at the 
eleventh hour mm. when you're not even involved being taken out. I awesome. tell you what, you know, um, you, you, you know, you couldn't win lotto, could you? Mm. But, you know, that could happen to you, and terrible for the family that this had happened. And now those two gentlemen are both buried at that extension cemetery. So there's quite a lot to see that has a New Zealand flavour, but also to be able to sit in the main square and have a have a beer or a coffee and get some French food and converse with the locals, that's quite unique. Mm. And mm. given that we've got our own compound there, when people go there, they don't have to worry about where do I have to park or, you know, you know where do I get information because the information centre in the old building will give you that. Uh, there's parking and there will be hopefully accommodation. It's not there yet. yet. That's why we need to get the message out and get New Zealanders to contribute to this project. I'd love to do a crowd fundraising arrangement uh, at some point in time. Maybe the moment's passed or maybe it can still happen. Or maybe we just get the young people in New Zealand to get behind this project because ultimately they're going to be the beneficiaries. For sure. And and a big part of that is making sure that you, you share share what you hear on this podcast and, and, and this project specifically as well. I mean, be our advocates. And that's a big part. The, the whole reason we created this podcast, obviously, is positive for us in terms of profile. But it's it's about making sure that everyone has their, their ex, well, improving the education of the, the population. So we can't do that if, if you're not sharing this with people. It's free. Um, it's not too boring, we hope. And a big part of not making it boring and still engaging is editing the audio with all the breathing and the moving around and all that chaos. And that's uh, that's a big part of that is obviously the NZ Audio editors. And we're fortunate enough to have the managing director give his time for us, Jordan Greville. So, yeah, by all means, uh, tell everyone about it. And uh, we're going to start growing this and improve the overall education of the population.